Chapter 9 of The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls by Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter 9 the Rise of Rome The Romans, in a way, show us a world very much like that which we know today. There are no such things as city-states now as there were in Greece, but the great empires and nations of today are built very much as the Roman Empire was built. The Greeks had never formed a great empire because they were not able to join together for any time. From the very beginning, the Romans were very different. The history of the seven kings of Rome is a story of battles and struggles against various enemies, but the result is always the same. Conquerors, or conquered, they join with their foes, so that while the Roman race was at first Latin, we find some of their kings, Sabines and other Etruscans. The Romans show us another new thing. The Greeks had been in love with art and beauty and freedom, it would be wrong to say that the Romans did not like these things, but a Roman liked strength and usefulness and order much more. The Romans gave the laws to the world, so that even now when men study the laws of almost any country, they must study a great deal that is Roman law. Everything in the Roman Empire was done by rule. Every one went about his business for a certain time and did it by certain rules. And the Romans introduced a new spirit into the world. The Greeks always thought, what is really the best thing? The Roman way of looking at things was, what is the best and easiest thing I can do now? It might not be, it probably would not be on most occasions, the really best thing, but it was the thing an ordinary practical man would do. It was this spirit which helped Rome to rule in time over most of the known world. The Roman was a man of business, and he did just the best thing to settle any question at the moment. In time, Romans were ruling over such different peoples as the British, the Egyptians, the French, and the Greeks, and many others with great success. In each case, the Roman governor set about things in an orderly way. He had men to help him who each did his separate task, and so all the business of the country was gone through. Roman soldiers would be there at first, but by and by soldiers who belonged to the country would be taught to take their part in the army. Great roads would be built, roads which were made so strong that we can still follow them in England today. Courts where people could go and obtain what was owing to them would be set up and the people would be taught useful arts. Wherever the Romans went, some trace of them remains to this day. Many English towns, such as Chester, Lancaster, Winchester, etc., have earned their names from the Roman name for a camp, Castra. And not only in the words, but in roads and buildings, such as bridges, are their traces to be seen. It is time now to look back at the story of the beginnings of this country, which soon took its place as the seat of the chief rulers of the world. In shape, 
Italy is like a human leg, with the island of Sicily standing near the toes. It is like a leg in another way. It has a hard center running throughout its length. The Apennines, as the mountain ridge is called, do not run through the exact center of Italy. They run to the east, forming in this way a rocky coast there, while the land on the west slopes gradually from them to the sea. It is important to remember this, for it explains the reason why the Greeks never invaded much of Italy. The land nearest to Greece was the same rocky eastern shore of Italy, on which it was not easy to make harbors for ships. And so the Greeks, with their eyes on trading, never pushed their way much beyond the southern heel of Italy and the southwest fringe of the coast, for farther north than Naples, where the Greeks settled, there were no good harbors. About the center of the western side of Italy there is a river called the Tiber, and this naturally acted as a line dividing the people on the north from those on the south. On the north lived a race which is one of the oldest in the world. They were called Etruscans. Where the Etruscans originally came from is not certainly known, but it is thought that they grew out of two distinct peoples, one that came from the north and the other which came very little later to Italy and crossed the Apennines from Lydia. The Etruscans were a highly civilized people. We read of a league which they made of twelve cities, not always the same, but cities which were great and important enough to be able to add something to the general defense. The cities were chiefly what we should call country towns, which had grown great from the crops, trees, and cattle produced on the land about them. They were not only towns on the sea coast, though some of them were, and they had good laws and some of the love of color which Rome borrowed from them. The Etruscans who lived in them were great fighters and made the Greek and the people of Carthage fear them. Though they were by trade a farming people and their markets might be found the traders of all the world, the Greek and Phoenician merchants came there bringing their gold and silver and ivory and bronze. Some of these precious metals were no doubt dug from their own mines, but the greater part found its way into the land through the hands of traders, and the Etruscans, who did not know how to make beautiful things themselves, sold their metals, cattle, and crops for such things as Egyptian vases and Phoenician cups. They were a people who loved luxury. Their slaves were beautifully dressed, and at their meals splendidly embroidered tablecloths and fine cups and plates of gold and silver were used. They were good flute players, and flutes, harps, and trumpets were played while they worked. They loved music and dancing, hunting, and the watching of fights in which strong men fought between themselves and against beasts. About 300 years after the Etruscans settled down, we find four great races grouped about the Tiber. To the north and west, the Etruscans, to the east and northeast, the Umbrians, and a little farther south, the Samnites, and to the south, the Latins. These last three peoples belonged to the great Aran race, and they were found already settled when the Etruscans pushed their way over the Apennines. The Latins were settled south in the plains of the Tiber, and from them it earned its name, Latium.
Many different races ruled Rome at different times, but it was the Latin language that the people of Rome spoke from the beginning. The plain of Latium had also, like the land where the Etruscans lived, many cities. Of some of them we know a little, and several have been made famous by the stories of old. Lavinium and Alba Longa are the best known, and the latter, which was about twelve miles southeast of Rome, will be mentioned again. The Story of Romulus and Remus History can tell us very little of the beginning of Rome, the name Rome is thought to mean river, and as the city stands on the bank of the Tiber, this seems probable, but it is quite uncertain. There is a very old story which connects the founding of Rome with twin brothers Romulus and Remus. The story says that they were grandsons of the king Numitor, who ruled over Alba Longa. Numitor's brother took the throne and ordered the baby grandsons of Numitor to be put into a basket and thrown into the Tiber. The waters in the river ran very high at the time, but when they sank lower, the basket was left standing in the Roman marshes, and the children were fed by a wolf as if they had been its own babies. Afterwards, they were found by a shepherd on the Palatine Hill, and were from that time brought up with his children. Sturdy and strong they grew up, and became in time leaders of a band of brave shepherds. In one of their numerous fights, they came to know who their grandfather was, and then they fought for him, and set him upon his throne once more. They thought it would be a good thing to build a city in the place where they had grown up, but the brothers now quarreled, and Remus was killed. Romulus then built his city upon the Palatine Hill. This story has been told in many different ways. Sometimes the father of Romulus and Remus is the god Mars. Sometimes he is only a stranger. The wolf who fed the babies is also, in some of the stories, a woman. There are other stories, too, which tell of the history of the Latin people and the towns of Latium many hundreds of years before. But they are only stories, with so much that we know is untrue, although it is very interesting, that it is wiser not to tell them again. All we know for certain is that some shepherds from Alba Longa built the city of Rome on the square-shaped Palatine Hill, which looks down on the river, probably as a fortress or strong place to prevent the Etruscans coming farther south. But it was built long before the time at which the first king is said to have lived. Romulus was probably a leader of the people, and he is supposed to have built the city in the year 753 B.C. This date is one of the most important in all history. It begins Roman history, and the years have ever been reckoned from it even to this day. Very early in the history of Rome, we find it already strongly defended against its enemies and with wise rulers for its government. The people were composed of three classes, patricians, who are thought to have been descended from the Sabines, a branch of the Umbrian race, the clients, who depended upon the patricians in some way, and the plebeians, who were people the Romans had conquered, or who had come to Rome for protection against some enemy. 
The patricians alone, at first, could have a share in the government, be fully protected by the laws, and take part in the Roman religion. The clients, some of whom were slaves, were people who wished to have the protection of the laws and be Roman citizens, and they were able to have these by choosing a patrician as a patron who could represent them in any business with other citizens. The patron and clients had very serious duties to each other. The plebeians were at first people who were almost as free and fully protected by the laws as the patricians, but they did not need to have a patron. Of course, it was not long before these three classes became really two, the patricians and the plebeians, the clients becoming really a part of the plebeian class. Although we do not know much, certainly, of the reign of Romulus, we do know it must have been a very troubled time. The stories tell of fierce battles with the people who dwelt about the Palatine Hill, and all we know of early Rome shows us that, though the language of its people was Latin, the divisions, laws, and customs were largely those of other people. An old story tells of battles with the Sabines, and as we have seen, the real ruling people of Rome were of the Sabine race, showing that they must have been readily accepted as brothers by the Latins. The divisions of the people were, on the other hand, Etruscan. The patricians, who it must be remembered were the real Roman people, for they alone had full rights under the laws, were divided into three tribes— the tribes, again, were each divided into ten parts called curiae. There were, therefore, thirty curiae, and these had each its separate religious ceremonies, festivals, priests, and chapels, together chose the king, and settled questions about when people should be put to death. The curiae were again divided into families, not families like those we speak of today, but more like those of the Israelites, which include a man and all his descendants and relatives. A hundred of the older men formed a body called the Senate and helped the king to rule. The number became greater when the first Romans joined with the Sabine people. All these divisions lasted, though changed in different ways, for hundreds of years, the patricians being the rulers, the senate assisting the chief ruler, and the curiae, or wards, choosing the ruler. The king was not like our kings. He was not only the head man among the people, but he was the chief man in the religious ceremonies, offering the sacrifices and consulting the gods, and he actually sat in the courts saying what was right and wrong, punishing the evildoers and protecting the weak. The state was looked upon as a great home, and therefore it had a hall and hearth. On the hearth, devoted women called Vestal Virgins kept ever alight a sacred fire, which an old story said had been brought years before from Troy. The time during which the first four kings of Rome reigned was nearly a 150 years, and during this time many important things happened. Rome was continually growing, and when King Ancus died early, the whole of the seven hills upon which Rome is built had been taken into the city which had started upon one. The religion of the people had become more fixed. Alba Longa had been conquered and destroyed though its people became Romans, 
A bridge had been built over the river to a fortress, a building strongly defended against the enemy, and a colony, Ostra, had been founded at the mouth of the river Tiber. The fifth king of Rome was an Etruscan, and under his rule and that of the two Etruscans after him, Rome begins to have some of the look of the city which is known to later history. Two other hills were taken into the city, and the seven hills were now surrounded with a great high wall. Vast buildings began to rise, such as the huge temple on the Capitoline Hill. Great drains and sewers were built to carry away the stagnant water which lay in the low places. A circus was laid out, and fights like those which the Etruscans loved to watch were arranged. But the Etruscan kings, the Tarquines as they are sometimes called, because Tarquine is the name of the first and last, gave more than this to Rome. They gave her, above all, a great position in Italy. From the earliest times, the small city-states of Latium, like those among the Etruscans, would join together to form a league. Alba Longa had long ago been the head of one of these leagues of thirty cities. In the league which existed at this time, the Tarquines gave Rome a leading position, and it is probable for the first time brought the city into contact with the Greeks. The Tarquines were proud men and great fighters, and when they had won a victory, they would come back to the city very gaily, wearing beautiful dresses and driving in carriages drawn by numbers of white horses. This was the beginning of what became a famous Roman custom. Every great Roman soldier who had won a battle looked on it as his reward to enter Rome in triumph, and these triumphs were sometimes almost as picturesque and fine to look upon as a Lord Mayor's show today. Sometimes the leaders of the enemies were dragged along in the procession, and one time it was thought a great thing to have a number of elephants walking together. And once the soldier entered the city between a long line of elephants holding lighted torches. The people came to like these triumphs, for they could see the great soldier and the strange sights and shout, Hail, Commander, as loudly as they liked. These Tarquine kings had not been lawfully chosen as the Roman laws ordered. So far as we can see, they must have been invaders who seized Rome, but they did great things for the growing city. They did not care much about the liberty of the Romans, and the last of them, Tarquine the Proud, came in this way to be driven from the city. The kings before them had been simple, and on the whole, good rulers. The Tarquines brought to Rome the luxury their people loved. They also increased the number of the senators, and the new senators were chosen from the states conquered by Rome. They changed the way the army was chosen, though this made the old Roman families very angry. Tarquin the Proud was certainly a bad king, but nothing we know of him really tells us the reason why the Romans, for hundreds of years afterwards, hated the very name of king. He made the Romans feared by all the Latin states around, and when he ceased to be king, the Roman power for a time became much smaller. But when his son insulted one of the noblest Roman women, Lucretia, the Romans said that Tarquin should rule no longer, 
that neither he nor any of his relations should be allowed to enter Rome, and that they would never have another king. Tarquin was not in Rome at the time. He was away fighting one of his many battles, but he did not mean to give up being king without a struggle. The battles which followed showed that although the Tarquin kings had made Rome so powerful, the people had the courage and strength to defend themselves if they wished. The people of two other towns joined Tarquin in his first battle and all marched out to the borders of the city of Rome. But here the Romans met them and defeated the great army. The next battle, a year later, was one in which Tarquin was helped by all the Etruscans under the prince Lars Porcina. It is this battle about which the story of Horatius is told. The Story of Horatius The Etruscan army had marched so near to Rome that only a wooden bridge separated them from the city. It is said that the Roman soldier Horatius kept all the enemy from crossing the bridge until his friends had broken down the bridge behind him, when he jumped into the river and swam safely back. Certainly many Roman soldiers must have fought bravely that day, but the story does not prevent us from realizing that Rome was so thoroughly beaten by the Etruscans that she had to give up all her possessions on the north bank of the Tiber and had to promise to make no more fighting weapons of iron. This last condition she did not keep to very long. A third battle was fought against the Latins, this time led by Mamilius, the son-in-law of Tarquin, but the Romans were once more the winners, and Tarquin ran away to a place called Cumae, where he died. There were to be no more kings, and so the Romans chose two chief men to take their place. It was thought that when there were two, neither would be so strong as to cause the people so much trouble as the kings. The new rulers were called consuls, and later on we find that each consul had certain powers which made it impossible for one of them to be very powerful without the other. Most of the great Romans, whose names we know during the next five hundred years, were consuls. The kings of Rome, so far as we can discover, had reigned about two hundred and fifty years. Very few things are sure in these years, but at the end we know there existed a Roman city, strongly built, with some great and beautiful buildings, with wise laws, and a people brave, orderly, and free. The Rome which we hear of afterwards is one that is almost continually growing in power, and it is the Rome which has made the world like it is today. End of chapter 9